0: Even if you have an idea right now, really the thing that one needs to do is to figure out what problem you're solving because there is nothing sadder than an amazing product that has been sweated over over a very long period of time that is seeking a problem to solve. That is horrible.
1: That's Oleg Fomienko, the co-founder and CEO of Sweatcoin. Sweatcoin is a health and fitness app with over 100 million users. It's growing fast. In fact, when we talked just a couple of months ago, they were at 89 million and getting half a million users every day. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to ask the founders questions you won't hear anywhere else. Sweatcoin works by giving their users a certain amount of sweat coin. You know, coins that you would use for sweating, essentially. For every thousand steps, you take outdoors. That digital currency can then be switched for products through the app's marketplace, as well as their recently launched cryptocurrency called Sweat. Oleg came up with Sweatcoin in 2014 when he was struggling to find the motivation to exercise after his previous startup, a music streaming service called Bloom FM, suddenly went under. Along with his co-founder Anton Deliatka, he was interested in the problem of how to get people to exercise more, the benefits of which you only get over the long term. And so they came up with a solution to give people an immediate reward for getting healthy. Now, I've known Oleg for a number of years, but I've rarely had the chance to be able to go into his career in so much detail. He told me what the annexation of Crimea has to do with the downfall of his previous startup, why he thinks we should avoid focusing on the product when starting a business, and the future he sees cryptocurrency having for his business. It's a great interview. But first, he told me about a childhood experience that had a big influence on him.
0: My first ever memory is Me kind of lying on something, and lots of scared faces uh, above me, uh, including my mum, and they are terribly concerned, which clearly makes me extremely concerned as well. Then I realize I'm on a train, and the train stops, and all of these concerned people sort of part, and doctor comes in, and you know, kind of after some manipulations, I don't have particular details. He gives me something really terribly sweet that I really liked that I swallowed and, you know, kind of with the benefit of hindsight and I've spoken to my mom, it turns out that, you know, kind of, he really tricked, manipulated me into eating something, uh, that dropped my temperature and saved my life. You know, apparently I had a crazy, crazy fever. And, you know, kind of when I told my mom that I remember that she was like, you were like two and a half. This, this is really early. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, the reason why I remember it probably because it was quite a kind of risky moment, but the learning and kind of what I took out of it was quite fascinating. And that was that manipulation is not a problem. It is a problem if it's done for the wrong ends and if it's not done transparently. You know, that doctor manipulated me into giving me something sweet. Because if you've given us something terribly tasting, I probably wouldn't have eaten it and I could have died. So the idea that manipulation in itself or, you know, kind of playing something on someone is absolutely horrible thing. And it's a portrait of character since then is kind of really not, it, it jars with me. I have a feeling that the most important thing is to keep the interest of that person the you know the well-being of that person at heart and then anything goes because that guy clearly saved my life.
1: So what you're saying is you believe manipulation can save your life?
0: I believe that there is nothing wrong with manipulation in itself but if somebody manipulates you to their end and to your disadvantage that's horrible but it's not the action of manipulation by itself that is bad and actually that does have you know kind of profound impact on the business that we're running I mean because sweatcoin is a manipulation you know we figured out why people are not physically active and the reason is that nature doesn't want you to nature didn't build you to be active nature built you to survive which is you know preserving calories as opposed to spending them so In order to change this, you know, kind of tweak your behavior, we need to sort of go very, very deep into a behavioral feature called present bias, which only has one cure, instant gratification. So we figured that if we give you instant gratification for steps, then you, in theory, should walk more. We invented SWEATcoin. We built it as an MVP (minimum viable product) for those that don't know, and you launched it, and people started moving more. Is it manipulation? Yes. In some
1: senses, all marketing is manipulation, right? Yeah. It's yeah. interesting to hear you uh, talk about manipulation because uh, certainly, you know, Russians particularly have a very interesting relationship with manipulation themselves. Um, Well, you know, the ones that I know, which are technically the ones that seem to leave Russia at all costs and then feel like the communication at the very least is very different from the outside of Russia from the inside. So can we talk about that, actually? Because I've never really had a proper conversation with you other than when we first met, actually, about your relationship with Russia. And I think in the context of what's going on right now, super interesting to see um, how, you know, consistent that thread is throughout your life that relationship also just touching on you know manipulation particularly
0: good question um yeah i mean i left in 1995 so many many moons ago the the reason why i left was because um you know i I didn't want to see the the world and i also felt you know, kinda of in nineties when you started working, there was quite a lot of not bad, but there was corruption going on. You know, kinda, of, you know, I remember having a conversation with an advertising agency that, you know, said that, oh, if you make a TV ad with us, we you know, we'll make sure that, you know, you go on holiday wherever you want and blah 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 blah. And I just kind of went, yuck. And uh And as I mentioned, I left in nineteen ninety-five, lived for five years in Austria, then moved over to London. So in uh two thousand I landed in London and absolutely loved it. It's been home sort of ever since till sort of last year. Um, you know, kinda I built two businesses there, I met my wife, I had two kids. And, um, you know, kind of what what was happening all the time is that, you know, there is a lot of crazy stuff uh, going on. Of course, everyone was, uh, you know, telling me, are you a hacker or are you a spy? Or, you know, kind of all of those uh, jokes. And there was a lot of bad stuff going on, you know, poisoning of Litvinenko, that, you know, kind of then there was this movie chalk in Salisbury, and it was all, Sort of a bit nasty and nefarious, and until very much this February, because uh, I think this February was a sort of big, you know, twenty fourth of February was a very very big point. Um, you know, kind of, I'm, you know, we're, good, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of how I feel and what led to it. But one thing to say is, you know, kind of whatever I say is in no way to. Defend Putin or to defend actions? I think that it's absolutely um, kind of crazy that we are in a state of war in uh, Europe that was uh, uh, started by Russia. There is absolutely nothing that can be happening that should lead to uh, kind of to this uh, uh, to this action. So. And how we're going to come out of this, you know, what impact is going to have on relationships between nations, you know, how we going to deal with Ukraine, because you know what, I have Russian passport, my surname is Ukrainian, I have relatives, you know, can in both countries, I still do not understand how you can drive such a wedge between the countries that are largely populated by the by the same nation. It's unbelievable. So, you know, and it was devastating. It was devastating for us as a business. We ended up relocating a lot of people, um, you know, 30 people from the team uh, that were based in Moscow. We now in the process of relocating them to Portugal, you know, kind of finding residences, helping them to basically start their life anew because, uh, you know, they, they want to live in Europe. As opposed to um, sort of being in Russia, that is getting into a tighter and tighter spot.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for sharing, and also obviously talking about you know the impact that it would have had for you as a business. Right, it can't be very easy to for any business right now that's Russian, Russian owned, Russian employed, because you know people don't really enjoy nuance, so. You know, this is kind of obviously the problem with sanctions in the sense that obviously, you know, that the people of Russia broadly don't deserve the sanctions. It's against the government. It's against Putin, etc. But there is no other way to do it. And so people go around boycotting Russian businesses. Again, understandable tactic, because the tactic is the tactic. Like, you know, it was a tactic as part of the strategy. So you're either all in on it or you're not. Well, at the end of the day, you know, I, I talk to you and, you know, a lot of my friends, as you know, are Russian. Like family people, really kind, thoughtful, genuinely like some of the most kind and thoughtful people that I know. Their business is totally ruined by these boycotts because they're just where they happen to be born from. So, you know, again, this isn't to say, you know, I'm very pro, obviously, as you might imagine, very pro-Ukraine and anti-Russia in my stance on the thing. But like it is hard when you know that there's human beings Affected by this, and and the business owners, you know, I have a friend who literally just about to do really great fundraising stuff, and this all happened, and like no one will give money, and it's a great <sighs> business.
0: Yeah, I think that you know, cause, you know, my point of view here is that also, what responsibility do you take and how you behave? Because to be honest, I am not taking responsibility for. Putin's actions. I cannot really sort of fathom why I should, because I completely disagree with this. And I know that there are sort of consequences and issues. If I were to go to Russia for kind of what I say, I could in principle probably end up in jail for 15 years. You know, kind of saying anything against the war is considered a crime. You know, we need to... I think all remain human because um, I, I know that it's extremely tempting to draw lines and say, Russia, bad, Ukraine, good. But it's always humans, it's always people. And as soon as you start making these general statements, that's when you're making the world completely screwed up. Because then it's us and them, next thing you know, that you know, can, you're starting to put oil on fire and all of a sudden you end up with another war. Like, you know, uh, I've spent a lot more than half of my life outside of Russia. Um, you know, can, uh, people would, you know, some would argue, well, Russians would argue that I'm actually less uh, Russian than uh, British. And the thing that you know kind of really fascinates me or actually frustrates me is that some people can dismiss sort of businesses, ideas, etc., not on the grounds that they're even coming from someone that is an adept of philosophy that they disagree with, but that is coming from a person whose birthplace is currently you know, kind of driving philosophy that you're disagreeing with. You know, kind of a birthplace is pretty similar to a race. You know, if you're judging somebody on the base of their race, you know, that's totally not allowed. But if you're judging someone by the birthplace, that's something that all of a sudden right now is considered in all circles as uh, acceptable, which... I think it's something that we do need to fight with to the nail and separate kind of nation versus leaders that declare this war.
1: Yeah, that's super well said. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. Let's go back to dinner. I don't know what the year was, I'm going to say maybe 2016 or something like that, but we were having dinner together in Soho, and you were telling the story of Bloom, which, you know, at the end of the day, Bloom FM, for anyone that doesn't know, was, I think the best way to describe it, was a Spotify competitor, really, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was mobile only. We were about streaming. And we were aiming for a completely different segment. Uh, It was a mobile streaming service for one pound a month.
1: And I distinctly remember um, having Spotify for free and paying for Bloom because I actually thought it was better, Um, which is hard to make someone do. It's hard to make someone do. I remember telling you this at the time. Um, And that is how good the user experience was. That's how good the product was. Um, And you were advertising in a lot of places. You know, I used to, I remember I was hearing like sort of radio adverts. I was seeing posters Very, very beautiful yellow branding. I remember the whole thing. It was very, very, very distinctive all over London. And then you died. And I was very, very, very surprised. Um, Talk to us about the Bloom journey. And let's talk about the failure before we get on to the success.
0: One thing that I know right now is that actually what is likely to kill you, especially quickly, is not those um, known unknowns, but unknown unknowns. So what actually happened in 2014, um, Russia annexed Crimea and uh, David Cameron back then started being really, really vocal about imposing sanctions on Russia. And my investors back then um, were, you know, kind of biggest Russian media group, which was part of Gazprom. And the reason for it was because I raised in 2008. If anyone remembers, that was probably the worst year to ever raise, especially for digital music, that has been a difficult place uh, because of label stunts, because how difficult it was to strike deals, because of the costs associated with it. And I mean, let's face it, it still is not the best place to be because uh, Spotify uh, that is huge business, is still not profitable. So, you know, that tells you how structurally complex the industry was. Anyway, I was able to convince Gazprom to back me. And, um, you know, that was the, you know, the downfall of uh, Bloom FM. They had controlling stake. Russian next Crimea, David Cameron started advocating tougher sanctions. I was called into headquarters uh, of uh, Gazprom Media and they just said, like, you know, kind of, there is nothing personal. We cannot, uh, you know, kind of continue supporting you as a business. We're going to kill it. And I'm like, well, it's a huge business, 1.3 million users, and there is a huge amount of value. We're generating revenues. Why don't we sell it? Now, um, you know, the point that we need to make is we need to kill the business. And I remember just being totally, totally shell-shocked. Uh, sort of going to the airport, calling to the office and telling people that, you know, that's it. That's the end of the journey. And next day I had to go to the office and effectively make an announcement to everyone that, uh, you know, we don't have a business anymore write a lot of letters to, you know, labels, partners, providers, etc. that we are going into administration with immediate effect. And uh, I spent the next year uh, burying the baby that I spent raising for eight years. It It was freaking hard. You know, uh, we had to move out of London with a family and scale our cost factor five. My wife had to learn how to cut her own hair to be able to start a new business. It was extremely tempting to go and work um, for somebody else to just repair the P&L. But I don't know. I was also quite pissed off. Uh, with the way things panned out, and you know, kind of covering so much ground, and then sort of being sent into, you know, kind of into nothing, that it was extremely tempting to double down.
1: And um, when you think about the period of time that you went through, like, talk to me about your your experience with your mental health, with your with your self worth, with. I guess, like, you know, I want to understand, you know, is it stoicism? Is it vulnerability? Is it shame? What kind of emotions did you explore during that period? Can you remember?
0: I think all of them and then some, because, you know, in addition, I had two young kids. You know, my son was six, and my daughter was four. Uh, So, you know, you have this two beings that, you know, kind of you need to start taking through school, you know, kind of while all of this is uh, uh, happening. It was, of course, countless hours, probably days spent. What if, how could I, you know, what could I have done to potentially change this? You know, kinda, I think that probably all the usual suspects and of course it was extremely, extremely difficult to sort of roll out of bed and uh, kind of keep going because, you know, you effectively without any income burying the, you know, the baby that, you know, you spent eight years writing, uh, it was absolutely horrendous. But... By the same token, I think that you know there is there is resilience, and the harder you you're punched, the more kind of force you exude in the opposite direction. so you know it was extremely difficult not to fight back. I've done my vipassana, and I've done this and that, and you know kind of then, soon after starting S I did my second Vipassana so. I've basically tried absolutely kind of everything to come my head, to keep myself busy, to try this project, that project. So all of that kind of, you know, kind of uh, time uh, was pointing towards start something else. And the idea of Sweatcoin was extremely, extremely enticing.
1: Yeah, it reminds me a little bit because you're just talking in a sense about spirituality there. Um, so someone who really helped me um, in some dark times was Eckhart Tolle, uh, who I always talk mm. about. He like, A great quote that he says is, uh, whatever you fight, you strengthen. And whatever you resist persists. So let go. I really like that uh, because naturally, as entrepreneurs especially, you know, it is a struggle. The reason I really enjoy the cross-section of spirituality with entrepreneurship is because of all the contradictions that you have to kind of figure out. When is it right to fight? When is it right to let go? And I think, you know, there is a, a you know, an, an, an inner sense of just uh, trying to understand yourself in these moments to figure out which one is the right one for the occasion. But after something's too late and can't be changed, I think at that point, especially time to let go. And just in case anyone doesn't know, what is, what is a Vipassana?
0: So it's 10 days silent meditation. You give up all the reading material, your phones, etc. You say a vow that you're not going to be interacting, talking, or looking at other people for 10 days. And then for 10 days, you meditate for 14 hours a day. It is excruciatingly hard thing. I spend a lot of time there thinking about the questions that you just you know referred to. What do I need to resist? Where do I need to push? Where do I need to just exhale and walk away from? And, um, it was an incredibly powerful 10 days that gave me a lot of energy for the, you know, kind of for the months to come. Actually, there's one thing that makes it very similar to climbing mountains for me. The incredible clarity of sort of Thought and lack of noise, you know, because I don't know about you, but, you know, I was like, you know, did I like that uh, iron, you know, kind of, you know, there's just like gazillion and one things that is going on and they just enter into your mind and distract you. After personal, I had probably about three to four months where all of that sort of crazy narrative and noise just wasn't getting into into my focus, or probably just wasn't there. And it is incredibly conducive to clarity of thought, being able to arrive to conclusions and also just sort of calm confidence uh, that is required to, to get something into gear.
1: You were mentioning when shutting down Bloom FM, you were talking about the reality of it was the worst thing. It was awful timing, like everything sucked and all this stuff. But, you know, like all of these circumstances in life really actually was the seed of your next business, right? It was in itself, you know, Bloom had to die in order to grow a new seed for you to find new steps forward and find a path. I think the reality is that is the case for so many people. And I think that's kind of it, which is when your business finally does fail and you're able to sort of stop for a bit only then are you able to start paying attention and actually listen to any signs that might be popping up in your life and really decide what you want to give your attention to. And it sounds exactly like that's what happened with Sweatcoin, which is you had these little moments of clarity, these little insights of opportunity, and decided to follow that, um, that glimpse of attention.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there are some amazing lessons And the biggest realization for me was that when you start a business, you really need to start with the problem. And I cannot over, you know, kind of overemphasize this enough. I've heard and I've seen it so many times that people start with idea or they start with sort of a notion But, you know, kind of the the reason why Sweatcoin is so successful was because it was a problem and it was a problem that I've personally experienced. And, you know, kind of we realized is just universal. And the reason why it's so valuable is because if you start talking about the problem, then it's quite amazing how quickly you start finding support and help. Like the first... Investor that put money into Sweatcoin was the guy that uh, I know for you know for some time. He was a sort of big supporter uh, of what we were doing with Bloom. Um, he's actually quite well known, I think, in uh, London um, Angel Circle. Steve Pankhurst, founder of uh, Friends Reunited. You know, we met and we you know I started explaining to him what I was uh, trying to do, and it was sort of a very very curious moment. You know, he lifted his pint. We were sitting in the bar in the pub, uh, talking and his smartwatch rang saying, congratulations, you hit your step count for today. We were sitting at the bar. He was lifting pints and his watch was counting those as steps. And what I was talking about is that we actually need to figure out how to verify movement and turn it into value because it's going to make the world move more and it's going to create an incredible amount of value for everybody and we can turn this into a really good business he just said you know what this feels like a sign you know kind of amen <laughs> and um, you know I started talking about the problem of not being able to be as active as I want to, and I started finding, you know, people that wanted to work with us, uh, you know, kind of future employees. I started uh, finding companies like Viva Barefoot that were, you know, kind of really in very, very similar space. So when you have a problem that you're passionate about, you're finding investors, colleagues, partners, everyone, because problem you can relate to. And... If you want this problem solved, you want to help this person. It's not the idea that they get hooked on. They get hooked on the fact that here is a guy that's passionate about the problem. I share the need to solve this problem. I'll back this guy to solve this problem. It's uh, really, you know, kind of, it, it, with benefit of hindsight, you kind of go, of course. But, you know, kind of, I spent, I used to spend countless meetings explaining to people that, vision and the idea of kind of music streaming, you know, all of that, instead of talking about the problem that, you know, my business uh, uh, was solving. Another thing that problem, focusing on problem helps with is as you're getting deeper into your understanding of a problem, you realize that sometimes you come up with just this unique and quite different take on what the nature of the problem is. And that becomes your competitive advantage you know everyone can have billions more than you but you do have this take slice of the you know kind of reality that they just cannot grasp because they're in a different place and that is your competitive advantage deep understanding of a problem can win a battle against juggernaut of whatever size for example in physical activity are plenty of businesses, there are Nikes, there is Adidas, there are you know, gyms, everything and everyone, but very few of them have shared or were sharing our simple explanation why people are not able to be as active as they want to be. And the explanation is nature doesn't want you to, nature builds you to preserve calories, not to spend them. So, natural behavior that nature drives in you is to sit. And preserve those calories because that means survival. And right now food is not scarce. So that is irrational behavior. If we were get, getting our software developed right now, that wouldn't necessarily be a behavioral pattern that would be built into us, right? So. It's a completely different interpretation. It's a completely different take on things, and that was a massive competitive advantage because people were just like, "Whoa, this is really weird and cool, interesting." And you know, kind of we raised very, very little money. We built Sweatcoin, uh, the first reincarnation of it, and you know, kind of, very quickly it started working. Um, you know, we started seeing that people were more active after installing the app than before. And, you know, kind of we, we we realized that our hypothesis that this instant gratification was changing your relationship with step into something that was gainful as opposed to spending. And people were putting one foot in front of another more times. But what problem or focus on problem does in addition to that, which, you know, kind of we thankfully didn't have to go through, but we were 100% ready is pivoting. Because very often, what happens is in your journey, you realize that the product that you have is just not solving the problem well enough. And that means that you need to pivot. And we have this drastic word that everyone just kind of goes, ooh, it's pivot, because, you know, investors hate it, you need to explain it to everyone, you need to sell it to the board, you need to sell it to the, you know, your employees. But if you're actually focusing on the problem, it's not even a pivot. You're just saying that, look, we learned deeper and more about this problem. We just need to adjust this product a little bit. And everyone's like, yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, it's natural, it's organic, and you know, kind of you are deepening your understanding of a problem that you're trying to solve. It's it's not a pivot in a way that, you know, kind of you normally see it, which is a change of direction. It's deepening of your understanding of a problem and it is a pivot in the way your product looks or functions, which is taking you closer to the destination, which is to solve the problem. And there are you know huge amount of businesses, startups out there that have this problem. And that's the reason why everyone is talking about product market fit.
1: I was actually about to ask, and then you said it yourself, like how does that relate to product market fit? And I think what you're defining is problem market fit.
0: Yeah, no, uh, no. What I'm saying is that if you're starting with a problem, you're automatically starting with the market, you know, because you're thinking, I have a problem. Who else has a problem? You understand very quickly who these people are. Ideally, it's your problem, because then at least, you know, in the worst case scenario, you build a product, you have one user yourself, it's very sad when you build a product and there are zero users. <laughs> so, you know, this is infinitely better outcome.
1: You start off with two users because two feet every time. So <laughs>
0: yeah, good way of thinking.
1: Your numbers have always been super impressive. And I, I again, I remember this from the bloom days, like, you know, you guys, well, your team certainly um, understands growth, understands marketing, understands like brand positioning. Talk to us a little bit about your user growth.
0: Well, in Sweatcoin, I think it's, uh, you know, kind of we are now on 89 million users. What are you going to do when you get to 100?
1: I mean, such a ridiculous milestone. What on earth are you going to do?
0: I don't know. I haven't thought about it, actually. Uh, We're probably going to need to have a pretty serious party. Actually, let me take a note of that.
1: You need those um, arcade machines that are the dance, like the tap, tap, tap dance ones. (laughs)
0: You know, it's probably going to happen within the next three weeks.
1: Wow. Is that how fast you're growing? You expect to grow another 11 million users in a few weeks. We're
0: growing about half a million users a day now. It's, It's pretty incredible. And, you know, by and large, it is organic. And the reason why we grow so well organically is because it's quite an incredible product with a really good product market fit because you feel good about recommending it to other people because you don't have this feeling like, ooh, I'm selling something to my friends. Uh, because it's a good product that makes our lives better. And you know kind of what's not to like? It pays to walk. People are like, what's the catch? Well, no real catch. For a very long time, people were like, you must be selling data, you must be doing this. No, we you know kinda of, we know how to monetize and we know how to be profitable without having to you know kind of sell data. We believe that data should be users and not ours. Um so you know we don't have to do it.
1: Okay, Oleg, we get it. There's no catch. But how do they pay people to walk at Sweatcoin? How do they make money? Well, before I let Oleg talk about all of that. I just want to take a moment to explain two terms he's going to use a bit later that you might not be familiar with, Web2 and Web3. Simply put, Web2 is used to refer to the internet as we've known it over the last 15 years or so, you know, with social media and stuff. And Web3 is an idea of a new kind of internet, one that runs primarily on blockchain technology. I'm not going to go into more details, but if you are interested in finding out a bit more about this, then just go and listen to last month's episode where I talk about the metaverse with co-founder of The Sandbox, Sebastian Bourget. There's a link in the show notes. But for now, let's go back to Oleg and why he wanted to go into cryptocurrency.
0: When we started in 2015, um, we were already thinking of uh, blockchain. So I've looked at uh, Bitcoin for the first time in 2011, and by 2014, 2015, I was definitely very interested in uh, technology. I'm definitely stupid because, to be honest, my take on it was tokens, bollocks. But technology is absolutely amazing. You yeah. <laughs> know, I, I, I wish I wish I've gone the other way because uh, then you know can I. You know, kind of. I would be in a very, very different place. But uh, basically, I didn't, you know, kind of. I didn't invest into Bitcoin. But I read a heck of a lot of books. We couldn't build on blockchain because we looked at Bitcoin, we looked at Ethereum. We even met with Vitalik Buterin. um, Had had a conversation with him and his team, and we realized that we just need to start centralized because you know, kind of MVP is minimum viable product, not all sort of singing all dancing Rolls Royce. And we just said, we're going to build as if it's on blockchain, but our blockchain is going to be called Postgres. And uh, we launched with that. And by early 2017, we were processing several hundred transactions per second. And we were like, thank God, because, uh, you know, Bitcoin processes eight transactions per second and not 800, Ethereum 15 per second. So we were like, wow, that pragmatic decision to save time and money for MVP actually saved our lives. And, you know, we looked in 2017, 2018, 2019, and there was absolutely nothing that could support our throughput until last year when all of a sudden Solana, Algorand, Nier, Matic, um, kind of all of those projects came out of woodwork and it was just amazing. We were just like, wow. Spend shitloads of time testing everything, talking to teams, and uh, you know, in the meantime, our sort of sweatcoin was going from strengths to strengths, and you know, kind of started, you know, kind of accelerating this growth. And now we announced on the twelfth of April, we announced that uh, we're going to crypto in this pretty short period of time. So what is five weeks? We've got 6.6 million wallets created, non-custodial wallets created on NIR. Non-custodial means that it's a wallet that you control. So basically you have the keys and it's not a bank that basically holds your money and you have a right to show up and ask for it. But it's yours, yours, and only yours. So we have 6.6 million non-custodial sweat wallets which is more than 7% of all Web3 wallets that exist in, you know, kind of in crypto space. And you know, kind of, this is just us starting. Our original estimates were 2 million. So we're really, really excited.
1: And I mean, a lot of questions, but what do you think about your timing? Because uh, terrible timing for starters. Um, let me get that out of the way. Um, yeah. How does that feel inside the team? Does that feel like a bit of a sucker punch?
0: To be honest, no, because I mean we've gone through you know we've gone you know we're health and fitness we've gone through COVID and we became profitable during COVID times, um, so th- this is just a sort of market reality and you know kind of it it might sound like a slogan but you know really cool businesses are typically born in in difficult market conditions so you know kind of you know first of all. We, you know, we don't know how long it's going to last first. Second, I also think that, you know, can, if the worst thing that you can do is probably launch into a free fall, but there is nothing wrong in launching when, you know, the baseline is up or down because it's a difference of you, your ability, the quality of your execution versus the market. And here I am, you know, kind of really, really convinced we are, you know, we are in parallel position. And the third thing is, it's actually, you know, kind of in, in, in a weird way, might be a blessing because bringing all these tens of millions of users is probably a good idea not to bring them at the sort of maximum of the market and then, you know, kind of guide them through the trough, but to bring them in the trough and work with them, educate them, help them to understand what it is, and then rise through the kind of through the next cycle. That is going to be a lot more organic, better and natural way of understanding. Because if you just come at the peak and all of a sudden you experience, you know, you're familiar with it. You know, you you hold crypto, you experience 50 or 80% drop, that feels like almost, you know, kind of life ends, right? And a lot of our users are not crypto natives, they'd be crypto curious, and I would wish for them to have an experience of kind of gradual rise and get their head around it rather than first go through the free fall.
1: Yeah, that's very fair. Um, I would say as someone who's weathered many crypto uh, winters, as you know, (laughs) because we've talked through them over many years, uh, walking yeah. is my, actually my solution for how to deal with the anxiety that comes with it. And, you know, uh, as I've been a sweat user for many years as well, because walking is my favorite, favorite activity. Um, I would love you Thank to you. just explain, um, how this works business model wise just quickly. Right. So I read a great tweet the other day. Look, if you're not into crypto, you know, some of this will obviously sound like gobbledygook for sure. Um, but I guess the question of like, where does the money come from in layman terms is always an interesting question in terms of like what a coin's value is. And I saw someone uh, who was explaining about complicated DeFi, decentralized finance, the other day, who said, if you're not able to understand where the exit liquidity comes from, it's you, which I thought was amazing. Because it's like, unless you literally understand where it's coming from, it's probably you. So you have to have that kind of level of understanding to make sure that you're not at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. Um so where does the where does the value of the coin come from in Sweatcoin? Uh, you know, to give um, clarity to any listeners that don't understand how wallets work and everything else, you know, the idea is you're building up some value. There is nominal value that's de- de- denominated by the market. Presumably, it will be denominated in ETH, but lots of people choose it to have e- uh, dollar value just so they understand it in their wallet. So let's say you build up a thousand dollars of Sweat you will be able to go on an exchange, you'll be able to swap that out for another currency, including USDC, US dollar token. And at that point, you know the question comes, well, where did I just get my $1,000 from? Did that come from Sweatcoin officially? Not necessarily, because it's a marketplace, right? So explain to us how that works.
0: Brilliant question. It's good to see that you have a, a deep understanding of how it should work. It's because
1: I'd be in the exit liquidity. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, but you know you learned your lesson really really well. I
1: have 100%. So,
0: you know, your question, we're thinking about it in sort of two parts. The first one is supply, supply of the token. And there are two very interesting things. So, you know, for TGE Basically, we're going to have a match. So every sweat coin that you have in your wallet right now, we are going to match it with one sweat that you're going to receive. So effectively, we're going to convert the value of activity that you've already done as a sort of build up to crypto. And we're going to turn it into crypto at a very, very attractive rate. After that... Going to be a very interesting token economics. So, every next sweat that will come into existence will require more and more steps. So, you know, it's going to be thousand and one, thousand and two, thousand and three. So, by the end of the first year, it's going to be sort of between four and not between three and five thousand, depending on sort of how aggressively will you grow. So, you're going to take 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 steps to get that same unit of currency. And we know what happens is that if you're putting more value and basic value here is your physical activity into something, then you do, you know, kind of your expectation and your relationship with it is that, you know, you want to huddle because, you know, the value is growing. And, you know, kind of this is the, you know, the supply side. On the other side of supply, we also have this, you know, because our mission is to make the world more physically active and we know how to work with people, you know, with with large groups of people, there is this amazing lever that you can pull to make people who go through these peaks and valleys, who run a marathon and then sort of sit and do nothing. We call it inactivity fee. So if you have very inconsistent pattern, we will burn some of you sweat unless you're active, because in order to live long, it is about consistent physical activity every day. Inactivity fee is effectively sort of a burn mechanism that starts taking tokens out of circulation. So if you're starting to look in the long run, you are not even having cap supply, you're having a deflationary dynamic. On the other side, we have demand. And here, because we've started in 2015, we already have three huge revenue streams that we know we can replicate in Web3, and actually, you know, can with with additional um, sort of advantages that make these revenues even greater. The first revenue stream is uh, partners, so you know, businesses that now. Put products in front of our users. Either put an incredible amount of value for absolutely free, that you know kind of makes users excited and walk more, or they put a little bit less value, but they pay us CPA, so cost per acquisition, and you know this is very very healthy revenue stream for us. The second revenue stream is advertisers, because, yeah, you can advertise on Facebook and Google uh, based on claim behavior, or you can advertise on Sweatcoin, where you only have people who are either already physically active or very, very keen to become physically active, because otherwise you're just not going to be part of our platform. And if you're sports, health, fitness, fashion, vanity, makeup, door accessory <laughs> brand, You know, you're fishing absolutely in the perfect pond. And the third revenue stream is premium subscription. So users pay to, you know, get some perks and sort of higher level of, uh, you know, kind of marketplace and access to some exclusive deals. So, you know, these three revenue streams in Web3 are becoming even stronger because, you know, we have now 6.6 million non-custodial wallets. But what's even more exciting that Web three actually opens revenues and revenue streams that un- that are unthinkable in Web two. And ultimately, when we are when we completely decentralize, what is really really exciting for you know kind of people who think big, is the fact that we're already sitting on terabytes of physical activity data, and it is incredibly valuable. So, for example, when Spain started their first lockdown. We saw that within the first forty-eight hours, Spain lost eighty-five percent of physical activity, just like this. And if you're starting to get these numbers, you can actually calculate the excessive fat that people are going to acquire over a period of time. You can start estimating additional healthcare costs that country is going to spend in actually getting people back into shape, etc., etc. This information is simply not available anywhere. We do not believe that this is our data to share and sell. However, if we're decentralized, I can give you, Dan, a switch where you can, by flicking it, you can actually make your data available so that these interested parties can analyze it and you can earn revenue. And, you know, all token holders are getting share of this revenue as a platform. So we have nine different revenue streams that we are working on. And given the fact that we were able to make our business successful and profitable in Web2, with an additional number of tools available in Web3, we are, you know, kind of in a good shape. To answer your question about exit liquidity, it is coming from everywhere. And users however it is not only users that are the liquidity providers like in a lot of other projects out there where you first need to pay and then you start earning and if the revenue stream is users and users come to earn more than they put in that's a very difficult model to sustain over a long period of time. We are not one of them.
1: What a comprehensive answer. And listening to the complexity of your business, you know, what, like what an amazing bit of technology that you've got going on behind you that are even able to pivot logically into Web3. You know, we talked about pivoting earlier, right? This isn't pivoting, this is solving the problem and doing so with even more modern tools. My final question to you, people that want to follow in such an ambitious career, which this is, and actually something with technological innovation at the heart of all of these journeys, what is the best piece of advice you'd give to people?
0: You know, what? it's not going to be exciting. I'm actually going to send them back to an earlier chunk, which is, Disregard everything else, the noises, the, you know, the profitability, the unit economics, the buzzwords, the whatever. Really, really deeply understand a problem because if you will, you will have an incredible competitive advantage, regardless if you have access to capital or not. So yeah, focus on the problem. Really, really double down, triple down, quadruple down on that.
1: Oleg Fomienko, the co-founder of Sweatcoin. Next week on Secret Leaders. Then we had some stock left. It was, it was going, it was draining quite quickly because um, we'd, we'd gone viral on TikTok in Germany. So Germany took all of our stock um, and then Brexit hit that December. So it really, people really pulling on our, you know, our stocks and stuff. So we had to bring people back into work. Everyone was just helping to do whatever they could to, to get us through this. That's Vivian Wong, who co-founded Little Moons with her brother. They make mochi ice cream, which became a phenomenon in lockdown, thanks to a TikTok video, which went viral. Find out how they did it. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories,
0: strategies, tips, and tricks.
1: Told by leading names in sport and beyond.
0: You know what it takes to get to the very top.
1: There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.